tonight. Uh, I have the pleasure of continuing with a set of teachings that we began a few weeks ago on the nature of the awakened heart, or what is called your Buddha nature. And these teachings are primarily reminders to us of the possibilities of a way of living that is free, compassionate, wise, that we all actually know. And the, the texts and the teachings that begin to offer these words uh, start with the phrase, O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, remember who you really are. Remember your true nature, your wisdom. And these which are sometimes described as the perfections of the heart um, are in certain Buddhist stories said to be that which is cultivated over <clears throat> hundreds of thousands of mahakalpas of lifetimes, eons of lives, of the perfection of patience, the perfection of truthfulness, the perfection of compassion, integrity, the, compassion, the com perfection of <clears throat> generosity and wisdom and so forth. But as we've talked about, part of the understanding of this mythological language of hundreds of thousands of eons is that it's not really something that we do on our palm pilot or kind of even on our life list. Okay, these are the things to check off. But rather, this is a reality that is outside of linear time. It's the time of the heart. It's the time of consciousness itself. Last week, after we talked one week about the generous heart and the capacity for um, generosity that is innate in us, last week we talked about integrity. And a few people came up at the end who were really um, chewing on that question because the teachings are, are a kind of beautiful mirror. But they said, wait a second, what if instead of these practices of compassion, of not harming, of not killing, and not stealing, not harming any other beings. What if you could hurt one being in order to save a lot of lives? People always ask the Dalai Lama that, you know, suppose there's a, a ship and there's some madman on the ship who's going to blow it up, and you could shoot that one person and save a thousand lives. Is that a compassionate thing to do? And the Dalai Lama usually pauses and says something like, well, yes, it could be, if your heart is really pure, it could be the most compassionate thing to do. And then he'll look up and he says, I don't think I could do it. I don't think I could shoot anyone. Um, so these aren't really commandments in some way. This is sinful or this is the commandments that are handed down. These are really practices and teachings. What do you do when there are ants or roaches or, you know, um, wasps or bees, and your, your child is allergic to uh, bee stings. And nobody can really give you the answer. Or somebody said, well, how about lying? What if, you're, what if you told a lie to save someone's life? Or what if you told a lie that will allow you to keep custody of your children because everybody else was lying in court? Is that ethical? Or does it have integrity? And what really matters is that we look into our hearts as we speak and as we act. And we look more than anything at our intention. Is it to harm? Or is it based on greed and, and fear and aggression? 
Or is our intention, when we listen deeply, to be a benefit to ourselves and to others in that circumstance? Intention is the root of this integrity, and the precepts and the teachings are more like reminders. It's kind of like a a yellow light or a red light. All right, if you're about to do something and, well, this doesn't seem to fit the training, it kind of stops you for a second. Well, is this something that I really want to be doing that I should be doing? So this is more the spirit of the teachings, not in any way absolute, but rather a reminder to an education of the heart. Now, the third of these noble qualities that we can feel in ourselves, just as there's this natural generosity, and all you have to do is meet little, hang out with little kids a bunch, and you see that they want to be generous. It's just part of being a child. Um, a natural um, delight in our own integrity is the, the third quality in Pali or Sanskrit is called nekama, and it is the teaching of renunciation, the capacity of renunciation to express our innate freedom of heart. Now, this is an interesting one to talk about in a society that teaches that accumulation is happiness. Isn't it? You know, he who dies with the most toys wins or something like that. But of course, as we've talked about here, the problem with accumulation or the desire that's behind it is that it's endless. It doesn't end. That is, you fulfill one desire and then you get it and then the next moment, I say, okay, well, I have that. How about the next thing? And it's amazing. Um, This beautiful poem by the Zen poet Basho where he writes, even in Kyoto, hearing the cuckoos cry, I long for Kyoto. (laughs) Here I am, and I have all this, but yet it's not exactly right. There's something missing. And it's the sense of something missing that's the problem and and not the stuff that are around us. Here we are in Kyoto, and yet we want something else. Now, of course, Buddhist teaching comes from this ancient lineage of yogis in caves and, you know, Um, ascetics and things like that. And one of the great stories that are told about these practices and and, uh, nobility of the heart, the um, Buddha nature, is uh, called the Vasantara um, Jataka tale. The Jataka tales are the previous birth stories of the Buddhas that when the Buddha was born as a parrot or a monkey king or an elephant and stories I've mentioned in other evenings. And this was supposed to be the last incarnation, the last birth of the Buddha before he took birth as Siddhartha Gautama, as the myth tells anyway. And the, the simple title for this story, if I were to translate it, is The Buddha Who Gave Away Too Much. And it's the story of the Buddha trying to fulfill the perfections of generosity, uh, born as a prince or a king near Benares in India many, many lifetimes ago. And it's kind of the tale, they like to dramatize it and tell it in the monasteries in Thailand and Burma. It's kind of the tale where the Buddha didn't get it quite right. So there he was, he was this king, and and, uh, he saw the needs of people around him, and so he used the treasury and he used the office of king to help as many people as he could, but then he realized it wasn't enough for his 
heart's compassion, and he began to give more and more away, which didn't really please the ministers and the other princes and people of the kingdom. You know how that goes. And he started to give whatever he could away, and finally he renounced the palace itself. He said, to make people happy, I will give all this away. And he left, giving, having given all his riches away and giving his throne to the princes who sought it. He said, well, I don't, you can have the throne, that's all right. Um, and he went with his family to the forest, and he was happy because he could give all this stuff away. And then in the forest, they lived, you know, very, very simply on the little things that they could gather from the forest and so forth, as in all fairy tales. And then one day, a poor farmer came along and said, uh, you know, I need someone to help me. Could I borrow your uh, children? Um, I'm very poor and I don't have any help. And actually this poor farmer, it's said, was in fact the uh, great Brahma god who was watching this whole scene from up in heaven and saw that here was this being giving away so much. Um, and he'd really crossed over the line a little bit and he wanted to protect this Buddha to be. So he appeared in the skies as a poor farmer and asked for the children who then the then the, the Buddha-to-be said, all right, if you really need help, I offer you my son and my daughter. Imagine that. I don't know what happened to his wife. We'll leave that out of the equation. Um, and then in the moment, the gods appeared in all their glory and said, you don't have to give your children away. You have already demonstrated the nobility of heart, and I declare that in the next birth you will be a great Buddha of all the ages or something like that, happily ever after. Um, although not quite in this story. Now, this is, it's kind of the Buddha didn't quite get it right. He gave a little too much away in this particular story. And one asks, you know, is this kind of renun what, renunciation what's necessary for liberation? Now, of course, if you've been a parent with kids, you can understand those moments where you want to give them away. That's a whole other thing which we won't get into. <laughs> but, in fact even though there have been those moments, um, there is a deeper wisdom that this points to. What is renunciation, and why is it part of our nobility? What does it mean? In one great text, an encounter with the Buddha, a, a, a wealthy businessman comes to the Buddha and says, I would like to open my heart and mind, and ask your advice. My life is full of work. I employ many people who depend on me to be successful. I enjoy my work, and I like working hard. But hearing your followers talk of the bliss of the monk's life and seeing you as one who gave up the kingdom to become a wanderer, I wonder, should I do the same? I long to do what is right. Should I give up everything? What would be the greatest blessing to those who, I, who uh, are in trusted in my care. And the Buddha replies, the bliss of a life that seeks truth is attainable to anyone who follows the path of unselfishness. If you cling to your wealth, it's better to throw it away than let it poison your heart. But if you don't cling to it and use it wisely, then you will be a blessing to others. It's not wealth and power that enslave us, but the clinging to them. My teaching does not require anyone to be homeless, although some may choose it. 
but it does require everyone to free themselves from the illusion that they are a separate permanent self and to give up grasping and act with integrity. And whatever people do, whether in the world or as a renunciate, let them give their whole heart to it. And if they have to struggle, let them do so without envy or hatred. Let them live not a life of self, but a life of truth. And in that way, bliss and genuine happiness will enter their hearts. So this is one of the Buddha's answers. Renunciation, then the renunciation of the heart, means not renouncing, possessing, or owning in the literal sense, but rather the attachment to, the grasping, the worrying, the the clinging. The extent of our unwise attachment and our grasping, our wanting, our fear of loss, makes us unhappy, clouds the mind, and closes the heart. This ennobling quality of renunciation is a reminder that we don't have to live in this clinging way. You remember the line, the biblical line, that it's easier for a camel um, to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to go to heaven? A biblical scholar I know explained to me that the eye of the needle was the name for a small stone gate in the walls of Jerusalem that a camel couldn't fit in, maybe a baby camel or something like that, but that that was the meaning of it. But it does speak to us in, in some way. How do we get to heaven? And heaven here means really the heaven of well-being of the heart. There is a joy in renunciation, the joy of letting go, not of poverty, but really of trust, of a kind of sacred abundance. In Zen, there's the little poem, How Refreshing, the whinny of a pack horse unloaded of everything. Unload yourself, it says. And you can feel it in, in you if, you if you listen and pay attention. Peter Matheson, a wonderful Zen writer, says, eventually the child's clear eye is clouded over by ideas and opinions, preconceptions and abstractions. Simple, free being becomes encrusted with the burdensome armor of ego, ambition. Not until years later does an instinct come that a vital sense of mystery has been withdrawn. The sun glints through the pines, and the heart is pierced in a moment of beauty and strange pain, like a memory of paradise. And after that day, we become seekers. And so something in us knows that we're not here just to accumulate stuff, that there's some deeper and more beautiful way of being. And then renunciation, this teaching, is a reminder of this truth. What does renunciation really speak to? First, there's physical renunciation, stuff. And you all know it as well as I, the joy of cleaning out the attic, the joy of getting rid of the stuff in the closet, of giving away all the things. You know, it it accumulates like a tide pool or something. It just comes in, you empty it out, and then more stuff comes in. 
I have this cartoon from the Chronicle. It's bizarro, right? These two cavemen talking to each other, wearing loincloths, kind of skins of some kind. This, is, this whole thing is beginning to get out of hand. I say we give up wearing clothes and forget to talk before it's too late, right? <laughs> but it is too late. And yet, in us, there is a recognition of the joy of simplicity, the joy of clearing out. Joseph Goldstein, my colleague and friend for years and years, teaching colleague, did a lot of his meditation training in India, in Bodh Gaya, in the Burmese temple, in this very simple huts that they have um, near the great temple of the Bodhi tree in India. And when he was there back in 1960s and early 70s, at one point his mother decided to go visit him. Joseph had come back and told her about his teachers and meditation and very enthusiastically. And so Evelyn, his mother, who was a very kind of, um, str- you know, strong and, and uh, a, um, a, a woman who had just yet a lot of energy and life spirit to her, said, all right, I'll go to India too and I'll go and see what my son is doing. So she went to visit and take a retreat there with his teacher and she stayed in this little tiny hut that was made of stone and bamboo with a dirt floor in one corner of the yard of the Burmese temple. And she was from New York, and she was used to living in a fairly comfortable apartment. And there she was, the, you know, the hut had a wooden bed in it, and Joseph went out and got a little mattress for her, so that was really nice. And it had a little, little kind of box onto which he'd placed a lantern so she'd have a light, and that was it. And then you'd walk out from the hut to the, you know, little hole in the ground, which was the toilet there, and that was... And she was a little shocked when she got to her accommodations. It wasn't quite like New York. But I talked to Evie some years after that, when uh, she'd been back in the U.S. for some years. And what was most striking is that she remembered that month, which she did of meditation, loving-kindness practice, and practice of mindfulness. She remembered that month as one of the happiest times of her entire life. She said, and who would have believed it? I had nothing. And I was so happy. There's a lovely book that Duane Elgin uh, wrote some years ago entitled Voluntary Simplicity. Some of you may know it. The choosing of simplicity, not to be good, be a spiritual person, spare your friends, you know. But because of the pleasure of it, of the natural pleasure of simplicity itself. One of the things that Duane Elgin found in writing the book and speaking to people about voluntary simplicity was that the majority of people that he talked to wanted to simplify their lives. I mean, I could ask you how many of you would like to do that, but I don't have to. I know the answer pretty much. And I think back to when my family and I have gone on sabbatical, which we do every five years or so. Take my daughter, Caroline, and my wife and I will go to Asia, and we've lived in Thailand and Bali and India in different times, and lived in the simplest way. We went to Thailand and lived for three months or six months in these little huts on the beach in one of the islands in southern Thailand. It's really quite beautiful there, but very, very simply. And 
paint and write. I was working on a manuscript of books, and my daughter would do her schoolwork. And it was so delightful to live that simply. Every morning, when the monks and nuns in the mo monastery uh, wake up and do their early morning chanting, they do a reflection on the simplicity of their life and the blessings of having food, one meal a day, whatever is put in the begging bowl, uh, clothing, a, a robe to keep themselves warm, shelter, a little hut, or the root of a tree, or some place that they're given to live, and medicine if they're sick. And how this is enough outwardly, and what matters for happiness is not more than that, but is the state of their heart and mind. And some of the happiest people that I know are people who have that little. Now, of course, even in that circumstance, you can get attached. I remember I had a really nice begging bowl, my teacher. <laughs> it's true. You know, the whole thing just operates that way, and I would polish it, and I got a really special little bamboo stand to put it on and things like that, you know, because... Clinging is a habit, isn't it? It's just how it works. A very old nun who had tried out the new forms of nuns' habits was given, giving her, uh, that were given to her order was discussing her funeral with the mother superior. I'd like to be buried in the old habit, she said. Of course, said the mother superior, if you'll be more comfortable in that. <laughs> So the question is, what should we let go of? If you visualize what it's time for you to let go of, or to hold more lightly, if you will, because there's the letting go of not having, but more importantly, there's the letting go of what we cling to. And in the end, it's entrusted to us. It's not actually ours. It's not given to us. We are, as I said the other night, more like the accountants in the firm. We get to keep track of the stuff, but then in the end you have to give it all up anyway. And the question is, does your stuff, do you possess your stuff, or does your stuff <laughs> possess you? I mean, who's possessing whom? There's a quality of stewardship that replaces attachment, the joy of simplicity what it means to use our things, to hold them lightly, to let them go, to live more simply. And it's true individually if we want to live wisely. And the wisdom of societies and nations is also reflected by what they do, as someone said, with their surplus capital, especially with the extras. You know, are we developing, or, well, let's put it the other way, are we reducing greed as a country? Are we reducing our inclination towards war or racism? I mean, there are 35 military actions and wars that the U.S. has been involved in since uh, the end of the Second World War. So I think we have some reflection to do about that in terms of our national renunciation. Um, There was a woman who came up to me on one of these Monday night talks some months ago and told me a story 
which she then wrote down and sent to me. <clears throat> she said her father had been a professor, I believe, and the family went to India um, when she was young, seven or eight years old, and spent a good part of a year there. She said, I saw the most amazing temples and you know, the most beautiful, enchanting people and jeweled palaces, and also tremendous poverty, as one sees in India. And she said, what I remember more than anything back at that time was the day that we were supposed to leave. We got all our bags together at this hotel we were staying at in Delhi, which was a kind of elegant hotel for the professor, and everything was being loaded up. And I was under this big gateway, this kind of carved um, entry gate with the gold leaf and so forth. And my parents were getting everything packed up. And then a girl just my age approached me out of the cool of the shadows. She was wearing ragged clothes that seemed to be stitched onto her body. She was the most beautiful girl I'd ever seen, and she was holding out her hand to me, palm up, imploring, gazing into my eyes. Her eyes were like dark pools of warmth and deep sadness, and I couldn't help it. I took her into my heart to shelter and love. I couldn't move. I couldn't move my eyes or body. My mother saw me there, came and put her arm around me to lead me away to the car. And I turned imploringly and said, isn't there something we can do? And my mother said, there's nothing. We're leaving just now. Then can't we take her with us? You know how seven years old, eight years old are. No, said my mother. And as we drove to the airport, I wept. Wept because I knew that she was my sister and that in the end we were no different even though my life gave me opportunities she might never see. And I took a vow. I dedicated the fortune of my birth to all beings, especially those who suffer. The only reason for me not to live a life that is the most magnificent life I can imagine is my own cowardice. And so from that image which I've carried for all these years, I'm compelled to live as best I can, a life of truth, of courage, and of renunciation. If you go to the Gandhi Memorial outside Delhi, there's a beautiful place on the river that goes by the city of Delhi that's a great green lawn, which is where Gandhi was cremated. And around this lawn uh, is a beautiful stone wall into which are carved some of the words of Mahatma Gandhi. So there you are, this big lawn and the river going by and the memories of Gandhi, all kinds of Indian families going there. It's really like a big temple. And one of the central passages right in the middle that speaks Gandhi's message, he said is, if you are confused in your life before you act, think of the poorest person you have met and consider if your next act will be of any benefit to them. So renunciation doesn't say give up everything that you own, but be a steward of what you own for yourself, for this world, not through grasping, but through generosity and wisdom and understanding. It's simple. Where we grasp and possess and hold on, we're not at peace. We suffer. 
And we know in the heart that another way is possible. It's all going to change anyway. You might as well let it go now and enjoy happiness rather than holding on. The second key area of renunciation is to renounce the possession of others. People don't like to be possessed. Perhaps one way to understand the myth of the Buddha giving away everything in his life before becoming the Buddha, that Jataka tale, giving away his son and daughter, is to renounce the attachment to the clinging, even to our children. And you learn this more and more as a parent, as your children grow. the only healthy relationship between a parent and a child is to let go and to empower them and to support them, but to realize that as they grow, they have to take responsibility for their own lives. You can't do it for them. You can't learn for them. You can't love for them. You can't explore for them. And it's particularly true when your children become teenagers, you know, and they start to go really go out in the world on their own, they begin to drive and so forth. The renunciation basically is to give them the car keys and pray, right? <laughs> and the truth is the extent to which we try to possess or control our lovers, our partners, our children, to that extent do we suffer and will they suffer? The renunciation is really the letting go of how they're supposed to be and loving them. Because in the end, that's all we can do with one another, is to love them. Ursula Le Guin, who writes, It is a wondrous and terrible thing, this kindness that human beings do not lose. Terrible, because when we are finally naked in the dark and cold, It is all we have. We who are so rich, so full of strength, wind up with just that. We have nothing else to give but our kindness. You'll notice with other people that we possess them in two different ways. Grasping and aversion. Two different styles of trying to possess people. The grasping, my son, my daughter, my father, my wife, my husband, my lover, should, and then fill in the blank, be this way, stay the same, act in this fashion, and so forth. And the more that we try to have them be a certain way, the more that we'll be in conflict, because they're going to change. I mean, what do you think a relationship is based on if it's healthy? It's got to be based on love and commitment, yes. But the commitment isn't to attachment to this person. All right, like a kind of uh, security pact, I'll be here for you and you'll be here for me and we'll never change, right? Good luck. (laughs) The commitment really has to be to love that other being as they change, to love them no matter what. 
so not to grasp things which change. I remember Zen master Sansanim, this Korean Roshi, who was teaching when I was um, part of a series of retreats down at Esalen Institute. And one year when he came down and we hosted a retreat for him, uh, one of his close disciples or students um, had uh, just broken up with this woman that he'd been in love with and they'd been in a relationship for quite a long time. And the man was absolutely distraught and really um, grieving and sad. And the Zen master was so uh, considerate of him and compassionate and sat with him and kind of held the grief of this, this loving relationship that had dissolved and so forth. And I thought, well, that's really, you know, tender of him. And then months passed, the Zen master went off to travel in Korea and Taiwan, places in Asia and so forth. And then he came back again a cycle later, maybe it was the next year, to Esalen. I remember I was there with the group of people that met him. And in the group was this man who'd been his devoted disciple. And the Zen master met him and said, how are you doing? And the man said, oh, I'm still so unhappy. I'm still grieving. It's terrible. And the Zen master said, you stay after I have a present for you. And he kind of greeted everybody and talked to them. And then the crowd sort of parted, went away. And he said, beckoned the man to come, come over to him. And he reached in his bag and he pulled out this set of the most beautiful beads that he'd brought back. They had uh, Kuan Yin, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, carved into each bead. And he said, here, I brought a present for you. And he took the man's two hands and he put the beads in them. And he held them with one hand. And then he looked at him and he reached his arm back and he smacked him across the cheek really loud. And he said, let her go. Shouted at him, let her go. Put her down. The guy was shocked. I was shocked. I was like, look at that. Wow. I haven't seen a therapist do that in my, you know. And you know what? After a few days, he was much better. <laughs> so, of course, sometimes, you know, we get it from inside. Yeah, we can't control people and we have to let go. And sometimes there's a little nudge, so to speak, from the outside. But in the end, it's not what makes us happy or anyone else. We also try to possess people in the opposite way by our anger, resistance, by not liking the way they are. And our views, it said, a philosopher is wedded to their opponent, right, in the Tao. And in a certain way, in our relationships, when we get stuck in our views, usually our views are about other people, you may notice, and the way others, human beings, are behaving. Isn't that true? Mm -hmm. And then we like to be right about it. Being right primarily means we're really attached to those particular views, right? We really enjoy that. I myself have enjoyed it quite often. Right? <laughs> Fortunately, I have a teenager in my house who reminds me that that's not the only view in the world. So the story, which I tell often on day-longs, but I guess I'll tell again tonight, is of this young, uh, and I've told on Monday nights before, of this young army officer who was uh, in a meditation training. 
for um, uh, in the army for eight weeks. They're now doing meditation in certain units in the army, um, which I'm very glad about. I wish you know it would go up the chain of command to higher levels. But that's an, another story. Um, and he was particularly uh, um, sent uh, assigned to this meditation because he had a, a bad temper. This young officer and you know struggled a lot with his anger and so forth. So after some weeks of the training, he was in a supermarket um, on his way home, got a bunch of things and was going to the checkout counter. And in the line right ahead of him was a woman carrying a young baby. Um, and at first he got upset because she was in the wrong line. He was somebody who liked people to do things in the right orderly way. She only had one item. She should be in the express line and not in his line. And then it got worse when she got up to the clerk and they started cooing about this baby that was being carried and ooing. You know how it is with babies, you know. And he started to get angry and feel the whole flood of um, tension and so forth in his body. But as he did, he remembered that he, he was learning meditation and he could feel the wave of heat and tightness. And so he began to relax and breathe and kind of let it go a little bit. And as he did, his eyes opened and he saw, watched them again with le a little less of that judgment, and he saw that it was really a cute kid, a cute little baby. So when he got up to the checkout clerk after that, he said to her, oh, that was a cute little boy that was up here. She said, oh, did you like him? He was my boy. He said, oh. She said, yeah, you see, my husband was in the Air Force, um, but he died last year in a plane crash. So now I have to work, and my mother takes care of our baby. She tries to bring him in once or twice a day so I can see him. So we have so many ideas about why people are doing what they're doing and why they're behaving. And the real renunciation is the renunciation of our judgment and our grudges and our anger and our views, because we don't even know most of the time what it is that makes this person do that. It's so lovely to not be attached to your opinions, to say, I don't know, or to have opinion, to hold your opinions lightly. Isn't it nice to meet people who aren't really opinionated? I mean, think about it. And then it could be moi, it could be oneself. <laughs> Basically, you can start to see the pain of carrying views and opinions. And ah, the kind of breath that comes. Although I thought you alone were to blame, this last instant my eyes open and I regard you with all the tenderness and love I've withheld for so long. A poem from Ed Brown. Now a friend of mine who went on a vision quest in the southwest in Four Corners. He did a 10-day vision quest, and he was going to have a vision. I mean, if you're committing 10 days, right, you've got to have a vision, do this thing. And so he's wandering among the cliffs and, you know, way out there, looking for a vision, staying up all night and so forth. Nada. No vision comes. And he's getting more and more frustrated. And he's the kind of person who, like that army officer, tended to be in conflict with people and with the world. So now he's in conflict with his vision quest a little bit, because no vision is coming, and it's the eighth day, and it's the ninth day. Finally, he kind of gives up. He's just sort of resigned, all right, I'm just not going to get a vision. 
and he goes around the corner of this set of rocks and he sits down there kind of moping and um, dissatisfied with his vision quest. And then he looks up and sees in front of him a pile of white bones. So he looks a little more closely. Looks like the bones of a deer. Actually of a stag, he can see it has the antlers. And then he looks a little more closely because it's kind of peculiar. And he realizes it's not the bones of a stag. It's the bones of two stags. And their antlers are entwined and hooked together. And what he sees as he sits on this rock, this person dissatisfied with so many things, is the remains of these two deer who'd been struggling in some way, gotten themselves caught together, and been unable to unhook themselves, and finally died of exhaustion. That was his vision. So the words from the Buddha, Look how he abused me, beat me, threw me down and robbed me. Continue to live with such thoughts, and you live in hate. Look how he abused me, beat me, threw me down and robbed me. Abandon such thoughts and live in love. In this world, hatred never ends by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. So here's somebody who's really done you wrong, you know, abused you, beat you, robbed you. And the Buddha is saying, all right, you can live with that and live in hatred and continue to suffer. Or you can let it go and be free. Oh, nobly born, remember the possibility of the heart of letting go of grudges and anger, of judgment. This is the renunciation so that you can love. Renounce being right. You're right. Okay, you are right. We accept that. But where does it get you? Where does it really get us? Do you want to be right or happy? Take your choice. And something in us knows. The third of the renunciations for tonight, renunciation of stuff, renunciation of clinging to others, is a renunciation of fear. Discovering a freedom from fear. My teacher Ajahn Chah used to talk about what Alan Watts described as the wisdom of insecurity. He would use the word my nah all the time, which means it's uncertain, isn't it? That would be his answer to a lot of different questions. What do you think about this or that, or what's going to happen, or what should we do? He'd smile and he'd say, my nah, and just laugh, like you were looking for some ground. And he would say, how about groundlessness? How about openness? How about not clinging? Fear is always about what hasn't come yet. We're never afraid of what's here and now. Look at it, see if that's not true. It's always something that's imagined. It's always created by our thoughts. You know, even if you're hiking in the mountains and then you see some bear scat on the trail, you know, you might be afraid, but, you know, you haven't even seen the bear yet. And then you see the bear and it's a mother and cubs. You get afraid, but it's not really about what's happening. 
You're afraid of what might happen. And even if you get chased by the bear, you can be really afraid. But that's not really fear of what's happening now. You're just running, right? <laughs> and even if the bear catches you and bites you, <laughs> right? That's not scary. That's just exceedingly painful, right? <laughs> the fear is not about that bite. The fear is about the next bite, right? <laughs> it is. It's always about something ahead. And then what will happen? And then what will happen? Look at it. So we can live in a contracted way in the body of fear, this small sense of self. And that we can notice the fear of pain, the fear of loss. You will have pain. Pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, they keep changing. You will have loss. It's just part of it. You will have suffering and you will have beauty and joy and gain and happiness. Both of those will come. To release fear is to say, I accept life on its own terms. As Hafiz says, fear is the cheapest room in the house. I'd rather see you in better living conditions. <laughs> and the better living conditions are a heart that trusts, that says, yes, I will die. Yes, the world will change. Yes, there will be pleasure and pain and gain and loss. And it's possible to live with a free and beautiful and open heart in the midst of this changing world. In fact, that's the only way, O oh, nobly born, to live with a free heart, is to say, yes, this is the way the world is, and to love it anyway. So a story. In Pakistan, in a little village, lived a weaver who was quite pious, and all day long he would chant the name of God, and people trusted him implicitly. When he wove a sufficient amount of cloth, he would take it to the marketplace, and if anyone asked him the price, he would reply, by the will of Allah, the price of this yarn is 35 cents. The labor is 10 cents. The profit by the will of Allah is 49 cents. And people had so much faith in the man, they never bargained, they just paid what he asked. Now the weaver was in the habit of going to the mosque at night to chant praises to Allah and sing the glories of his name. Late one night, while he was at his chanting, a band of robbers burst in. They needed someone to carry their stolen goods, so they said, come with us. And the weaver meekly accompanied them with, with the goods. Soon the police gave chase and the robbers began to run. And the weaver ran with them, but since he was an old, older man, the police soon caught up with him and finding the stolen goods, arrested him and threw him in jail. The following morning he was sent before the judge and accused of burglary. When the judge asked him what he had to say for himself, he said, Your Honor, by the will of Allah, I finished my meal last night, and by the will of Allah, I went over to the mosque there to chant praises. That's when suddenly, by the will of Allah, a band of robbers burst in, and by Allah's will invited me to carry their goods for them. They put, up such, put, put such a load on me that by the will of Allah, the police gave chase, and when they did, I was easily caught. And then, by the will of Allah, I was arrested and thrown in jail. And here I am standing before you this morning by the will of Allah. The judge said to the policeman, let the man go. He's evidently out of his mind. <laughs> Back home, when he was asked what happened, the pious fellow said, 
By the will of Allah, I was arrested and tried in court, and by the will of Allah, I have also been acquitted. <sighs> to let go of fear is really to see that we don't control and we don't possess, and that the universe is so much bigger and more mysterious, and nobody really quite knows what's going to happen. And we don't even remember who we are so well. You know that little Hindu story where they say to the, that the child in the womb sings this song, Oh, do not let me forget who I really am. And then as soon as they're born, the melody changes. Oh dear, I'm forgetting already. There is a reality from which you are born, from which we are all born, that is not this body. Do you think you're the food body? I mean, this is just a temporary garment, this incarnation. There is a reality that creates joy and sorrow and pleasure and pain and the unbearable beauty of the world and the fathomless suffering of it. And for us to live with nobility is to open our eyes and our hearts to the world as it is, not with fear, but really with trust in this life. And then to act as beautifully as we can, as it says in the Bhagavad Gita, the secret is to act well without attachments to the results, the final renunciation. To act beautifully without attachment to the results. By the will of Allah, it will come out, inshallah, as it will. That's not given to you. What's given to you is your nobility and your capacity to act beautifully and fearlessly, even when you're afraid. Fearlessly doesn't mean you don't have fear, just that you don't believe it. And it's kind of amazing if you have the privilege and the opportunity to sit with someone who's dying in a conscious way. And they look back over their life, you know, at the very end, because it really doesn't matter when you look back over your life, most of the things that seemed important drop away. What's left is so simple. Did I love well? Did I let go? Did I live fully? And then you die and you kind of have that moment where you look and you say, boy, that was a trip, wasn't it? That was quite a life. What an amazing movie that was. And it's gone. It happened and then it disappears. This is true. Some people talk about finding God as if he could get lost, right? <laughs> What's true is that by whatever name you give it, the divine, the sacred, the mystery, the dharma, there's something so big that we are born into. And in this, the Buddha said, make of yourself a light. O oh, nobly born, remember that you can move through this world like a bird through the sky without leaving a trace or with leaving the scent of compassion, the scent of love as your trail. So the great renunciation isn't leaving home, although it might be useful to clean out your garage and your attic and things like that. It's really not clinging. It is this secret to act beautifully, to act well, without attachments to the results.
to renounce fear, to renounce unhappiness. How about that? You don't have to hold on to it, you know. To renounce clinging to others the way they should be. And to open your heart like the sky to the beauty, the wind, the sorrows of life, to meet those with compassion. Here is a final passage or poem which the Buddha expresses this. And this comes from the Sutta Napata, which are the oldest Buddhist texts extant. These are written in a kind of um, particularly archaic language, and they describe the first years of the Buddha as he was wandering around India, even before there was a big kind of order of monks and nuns that followed him. The Buddha says, or so that so this story tells anyway, um, that he's come up to the banks of this river and encounters a herdsman named Dhyana. I've boiled my rice, milked my cows, said the herdsman Dhyana. I'm living together with my fellows near the banks of the Mahi River. My house is covered, the fire is kindled, therefore, if thou like rain, O sky. So the rainy season is coming. And the Buddha, who has wandered there, says, I am free from anger, free from stubbornness. I am abiding for one night near the banks of the Mahi River. My house is uncovered. The fire of clinging is extinguished. Therefore, if thou like, rain, O sky. These couplets. Gadflies are not to be found with me, says the herdsman. In the meadows abounding with grass, the cows are roaming. They can endure the rain when it comes. Therefore, if thou like rain, O sky. And the Buddha responds, By me is made a well-constructed raft. I've passed over to Nirvana, the farther shore, having overcome the torrent. There is no more fear. Therefore, if thou like rain, O sky. And then Dhyana says, my wife is obedient, not wanton, this old translation. For a long time she's been living together with me. She is winning. I hear nothing wicked of her. Therefore, if thou like rain, O sky. You know, that kind of possessiveness. And the Buddha responds quite beautifully. He says, my mind is obedient. This is the real practice. Delivered from all grasping. It has been cultivated and subdued and liberated. There is no longer anything that arises in me that could cause me to cling. Therefore, if thou like, rain, O sky. I am no one's servant, says the Buddha, and with what I have gained, I wander freely in all the world, with heart open, attached to nothing, compassionate to all. Therefore, if thou like, rain, O sky. So let's sit for a moment.
So nobly born, remember your true nature, the generosity that is inherent in the heart. Whenever an impulse to give arises, if possible, do it. The integrity that is natural to your heart to not harm or misuse others in any way, to care for life, to speak truth. And the joy of renunciation of what we possess and what possesses us. And reflect what things it might be time to sell or give away to the poor or hold more lightly. Or what people it's time to release in the heart and to let them be with love as they are. And what views and ideas and fears it's time to let go of, to renounce, and rest in the trusting heart. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.